0: For the last two weeks we've been looking at 14 so called proofs of evolution, basically dismissing each one of them in the face of closer examination. These included the three great facts upon which Darwin rested his theory. In today's part three of our series entitled Evolution A Theory in Crisis, our teacher Michael Penfold will take up eight problems that evolutionary theory faces in its attempt to explain the processes by which all of the life around us originated without a designer god. Lastly, he presents three pathways to a different way of looking at things, God's way.
1: Let us go to proof number 14, Ape Man. This whole subject fascinates me. In the Natural History Museum, I took this photograph, most of these photographs were taken with my own camera in the museum. There is a four-foot-high chimpanzee-looking creature, the creature that you see on the right was built based upon the bones you see on the left. That's all they had to go on to build the creature on the right. This is an Australopithecus, a southern ape. This particular one was called Lucy because when it was found by Donald Johansson in 1974, the Beatles' song Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was playing on the radio. So they decided they'd call it Lucy. Now I'm particularly interested in this one because I believe it is a complete fraud. If you look at Lucy, you'll see a sort of interesting, thoughtful look on her face. You'll see the completely human hands that she has. Now notice, they've given her completely human hands. But notice here, there are no bones for the human hands. They've given her, you can't see it so well on the screen, but that's completely human looking feet, based on nothing. So they gave her completely human feet, completely human hands, without a bone to go on. I wrote a letter to the head of the department there in the uh, Natural History Museum and question him about that because to me that's a very misleading exhibit. As you go round you find other misleading looking photographs. This is another photograph from the Natural History Museum. Here they've drawn these creatures, half human, half chimpanzee. Reminded me very much of the picture that was put into the London Illustrated News in 1922. Somebody was in Nebraska one day and they dug up this tooth and Sir Grafton Elliot Smith, a distinguished English anatomist, he commissioned a painting which was given a two-page spread in the London Illustrated News. You know, you can imagine him going to these people and saying, can you draw the creature that this tooth used to come from? And the man said, yeah, I'll draw his wife as well while I'm at it. And so he draws Mr. and Mrs. Nebraska Man. You know, they went back, I think it was five years later, was it? Yes, five years later and they found the rest of the animal. Turned out it was an extinct pig. It wasn't an ape, it wasn't a man, it was an extinct pig. That's a case of a pig making a monkey out of an evolutionist. But let's go back to Lucy. What are the similar features between Lucy and man? Well, the shape of the jaw is somewhat similar. But that wouldn't be conclusive proof because there's a wide range of shapes of jaws in humans and chimps. The size of the teeth were somewhat similar, but again that wouldn't be conclusive because there are various types of apes that have similar teeth to humans. The biggest play that they gave was on the femur. You'll notice the angle is coming in. Normally an ape, their legs go straight down, and when they walk, they have to walk from side to side, otherwise they'd fall over. We don't have to do that because we've got an angle. About 9 degrees going in. So when I lift this foot up, I can still stand up because my centre of gravity is almost directly under my body. And so they said that Lucy had a 15 degree angle and therefore she was on the way to walking on 2 feet. Well, there are several problems with that. Although gorillas and chimps have straight legs, orangutans and spider monkeys have very similar carrying angles to Lucy and yet they just climb trees and they don't walk upright all the time. They can walk upright, but they are not bipedal in that sense. But let's go back to these hands. I wrote to Professor Chris Stringer. He's the head of human origins at the London History Museum. And I said, excuse me, how can you dare to put human hands and human feet on this creature when you don't have a bone to go on? And he wrote back and said, I wasn't here when Lucy was made. That was 25 years ago. Then he sent me along to look at some journals. It actually has turned out that there are several other Australopithecine skeletons throughout the world and some of them do have hands and some of them do have feet and they find out that they are long and curved just like apes and gorillas would be expected to be. Their wrists are capable of locking so they are knuckle walkers. They have different shaped ribs a different shaped ridge cage and their skulls are typically ape-like. Charles Oxnard who Stephen Jay Gould called our leading expert on the qualitative study of skeletons declared the Australopithecines are now irrevocably removed from a place in the evolution of human bipedalism and certainly from any place in the direct human lineage. So what about all the other ones? Well before we get to all the other ones, let me just put up one more slide here. I read a book recently called The Origin of Man by Stuart Burgess. Very, very interesting book. He's the head of the Department of Mechanical Engineering at Bristol University. A very, very clever designer. And he goes through the differences between ape and man in relation to upright walking. And he says you need a lot more than just an angled femur to walk upright. In fact, he says there are ten different features that you need for upright walking, including upright hip joints, a straight back, flat face, upright knee joints, long leg, arched feet, and so on and so forth. And he says in every one of these, Lucy completely fails. You say, what about all the other ones? What about Homo erectus and Neanderthal man and, and Habilis and all the rest of them? What about them? Well, let's ask an expert. Let's ask the chief science writer of Nature magazine, Henry G. This is what he said in 1999. He said that the conventional picture of human evolution as lines of ancestry and de- descent is, quote, a completely human invention created after the fact and shaped to accord with human prejudices. In other words, when you see that row of nicely sequenced apes going up and finally reaching man, that's a fiction. He further stated, quote, to take a line of fossils and claim that they represent a lineage is not a scientific hypothesis that can be tested, but an assertion that carried the same validity as a bedtime story. Amusing, perhaps even instructive, but not scientific. I even read a shocking quote in the National Geographic, not known for its anti-evolutionary views. Just recently, July 12, 2001, the world of paleoanthropology, in other words, finding the origins of man, is highly contentious, and scientists have been trying for many decades to sort out the murky ancestry of today's human race by comparing thousands of fossil bones and skull, but no evidence is certain, and no lineages are clear. But you see, the average person in the street thinks it's all settled. But it's not. Behind closed doors, the theory is in crisis because the proofs don't stack up. It's no wonder that the professor Simon Conway Morris, a paleontologist from Cambridge University said, when discussing organic evolution, the only point of agreement seems to be it happened. Thereafter, there is little consensus. So we've looked at the 14 so-called proofs. Now I want to briefly look at eight problems. The first problem is the very nature of mutations themselves. Mutations cannot account for all of life because they are far too infrequent. They never result in a gain of genetic information. They are often balanced out in reproduction and they are almost always harmful. Haemophilia, sickle cell anemia, muscular dystrophy, cystic fibrosis, Down syndrome, 4,000 other diseases and illnesses are a result of mutation. It's not a world-building engine. It's a very destructive system. In fact, the genetic system's prime function seems to be to resist change. So mutations is a huge problem, not a plus. Plus there are limits on mutations. Second problem is the limit. There was an evolutionist once called Richard Goldschmidt, an eminent geneticist. He bred gypsy moths for 20 years and a million generations. All he got was gypsy moths. Nothing more, nothing less. Famed American plant breeder Luther Burbank said he could breed a plum from half an inch to two and a half inches long. But it was impossible genetically to go as small as a pea or as big as a grapefruit. In other words, there are limits to what you can do with mutations. Professor Lane Lester and Raymond Bolin in their book Natural Limits to Biological Change said this, quote natural selection, recombination, Mutation and speciation can all interact in concert to bring about startling variation, but there are limits to biological change. There are certain walls that mutations cannot jump. Natural selection also has limits. What can natural selection explain? It can explain a lot of things. It can explain different beak sizes. It can explain wingless insects, sightless fish, flightless birds, but it cannot build complex structures in the first place. It can hone existing structures, but it cannot build complex structures. Then we have another problem with evolution. We have something called the Cambrian Explosion. You say, what's that? Well, there is a layer of rock, very deep, which we call the Cambrian Rock Layer. Apparently the oldest rocks in existence. There may be some pre-Cambrian ones, slightly older, but for, for all intents and purposes, we're talking about the oldest rocks. Supposedly 540 million years old. But the fact is that in those rocks you get the sudden appearance of between 25 and 35 completely novel body plants. They literally, on an evolutionary scale, just popped into existence. There they all are, with no ancestors. In fact, evolutionary paleontologist Peter Ward said if ever there was evidence suggesting divine creation, surely the Precambrian and Cambrian transition known from numerous localities across the face of the earth is it. Another problem with evolution is a lack of transitional fossils. To be a Darwinian you actually have to believe that the fossil record is completely misleading. It's like looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, looking for these missing transitional fossils. Darwin actually said in his book, Origin of Species, and I quote, why then is not every geological formation and every stratum full? of such intermediate links. Geology does not reveal any such finely graduated organic chain and this perhaps is the most obvious and gravest objection which can be urged against my theory. Colin Patterson, the senior paleontologist at the British Museum of Natural History, he wrote in his book, I will lay it on the line, there is not one such fossil for which one can make a watertight argument for being transitional. Stephen Gould, leading fossil expert, now dead, He says, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data at the tips and the nodes of their branches. The rest is influence, however reasonable, not the evidence of the fossils. And we say, well, the problem is we just don't have a complete record. You know, we'll find them one day. It's just that, you know, the fossil record is incomplete. By what peculiar rules of probability does it happen that all the fossils we have found are the fully formed ones, and all the fossils we haven't found are the intermediate ones. Sixth problem with Darwinism, complex beginnings. If we go back to this Cambrian rock, you can find a little creature in there called a trilobite. It has been extinct for millions of years, so they say, and existed 570 million years ago. And yet, according to Lisa Scheuer, writing in Science News, the trilobites had, quote, the most sophisticated eye lenses ever produced by nature. Now this creature here that we're looking at, these trilobites, they had more complicated eye lenses than you have. And yet they're right there. Smack bang at the beginning, 570 million years ago. Where did that complexity come from? Why didn't they have a simple... Why did they have a complex lens? That cannot be answered by Darwinian evolution. Seventh problem, irreducibly complex organs. An irreducibly complex organ can be illustrated with a mousetrap. Just five parts to a mousetrap. If you take away any part, the mousetrap won't work. It won't half work, it won't a quarter work, it won't work at all. Take away any part of the mousetrap and it won't work at all. Now you bring that into the biological realm. Take the flagellum on the back of a bacterium. Basically, nanotechnology, the most sophisticated machine known in the universe. And there it is. Take away any of the proteins that run it, it won't work at all. So if you've got an organ that is irreducibly complex, it cannot be built by slow, gradual processes over millions of years. And finally, mathematics. I would love to have a pound for every time someone has said to me, oh yes, It can be done. All you need to do is put a a monkey in a room, a bunch of monkeys in a room with a bunch of typewriters and give them millions of years and they'll produce the works of Shakespeare. And it's the same with mutation. Millions of years, plenty of time, we'll get everything we need. People are not thinking straight. Let me tell you the facts. I want you to think of a 12-letter word. Construction. Unreasonable. Do you know a 12-letter word is so rare that they occur only once by chance in strings of letters 100 quadrillion letters long. If a monkey sits at a typewriter and starts typing at random, he will only get a 12-letter word that makes sense every 100 quadrillion letters. Now if he types at one letter a second, it will take him 3 million years. It'll take a monkey three million years to get one meaningful twelve letter word. And you're trying to tell me you can get the whole works of Shakespeare? See, people don't actually test the theory. There isn't enough time in the whole history of an evolutionary universe to build one single protein thirty amino acids long. Not enough time. It cannot be done not even on a supercomputer. We've looked at fourteen proofs for evolution and we've dismissed them. We've looked at eight problems with evolution. Now I want to look at three pathways that lead in a different direction. Pathways that lead to a creator. I mentioned on the radio this afternoon the issue of information. There are people looking for intelligence in outer space. The SETI program. Search for extraterrestrial intelligence. What are they looking for? They're looking for information. They just don't want noise. If they could just get one... Intelligent radio signal from outer space. What would they conclude? That there's an intelligent being sent it. All they need is one intelligent radio signal to prove there's intelligence out there. Now take that down to a molecular level. If you look at your DNA, you are looking at complex, specified information. There's as much information in the DNA of one of your cells as there is in the entire Encyclopedia Britannica in print and every letter has to be in the right place. Now that proves there is an intelligent creator. So information is a pathway that leads us to the conclusion that there is a creator. But not only information but elimination. There are only four possibilities for where we all came from. We either came from nothing accidentally, we came from nothing supernaturally, we've always been here, or we're not really here at all, we're just an illusion. I hope nobody here believes that we're just an illusion. Nearly all of science, both creation and evolution, rejects the fact that we've always been here. Do we come from nothing accidentally, or do we come from nothing supernaturally? You can't come from nothing accidentally, there is only one option. We must have come from nothing supernaturally. So you can reach to a creator, not only by information, but by elimination. But finally you can reach to a creator by revelation. Now revelation is rejected by evolutionary science. I will give you enough proof to send you home with a head full that in the Bible there is clear evidence that God has spoken. Many, many evidences, in particular the predictive accuracy of (coughs) scripture. Prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in the New. You say well look, if all is as you say, if evolution is a load of rubbish, and if creation is so easy to find, why doesn't everybody believe it? I've often thought about that. Partly ignorance, they're not exposed to the facts. Partly they don't want to believe it. Richard Dawkins said, quote, I am a Darwinist because I believe the only alternatives are Lamarckism or God, neither of which does the job as an explanatory principle. Professor Watson said the same thing. Evolution is a theory universally accepted not because it can be proven by logically coherent evidence to be true, but because the only alternative, special creation, is clearly incredible. I wonder if there's somebody in the room tonight, and if the truth was told, the real reason you believe in evolution isn't because of the facts. You have an emotional attachment to it because you don't want to admit there's a God. And even though you can't really prove it, you're willing to accept evolution because the alternative gives you a shudder. Some people actually admit it. Distinguished Harvard geneticist Richard Lewontin said this. This is one of the most staggering quotes you will ever hear. This is why this guy believes in evolution. We take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs. In spite of its failure to fulfil many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories. Because we have a prior commitment, a commitment to materialism. Not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our, our priori adherence to material causes to create an apparatus of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations. No matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. Moreover, that materialism is an absolute, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door.
0: You see, the main problem with those who trust in evolutionary theory is that they have to if they have already chosen not to believe in god either life originated by a designer god or it arose through chance and natural processes alone leaving god altogether out of the picture presents an enormous problem for evolutionists on many grounds as we have already seen in this series At Anchor Point, we want our listeners to believe and trust in what God says. He was there at the beginning, and he has told us all that we need to know about the ages of past history. Such scientific advances as the discovery of complex molecular machinery and the growing knowledge of information theory are beginning to cause further problems for evolutionary theory. So, Christian, don't despair. When skeptics oppose you, Science is steadily coming closer to uncovering the designer of it all, the designer that we know to be the God of the Bible, the God of your salvation. If this or any of our Bible messages here at Anchor Point has made you aware of God's interest in you, or if you'd like some literature or a visit that would help you to understand these important truths, why don't you drop us a line at email at anchorpointradio.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're glad that you were able to join us at Anchor Point today. Anchor Point is sponsored by Christians who are meeting in various gospel halls. Each of these Christian assemblies holds gospel services every Sunday night, as well as regular prayer and Bible studies throughout the week. No collection is ever taken, and the very warm welcome awaits you. And if you've been challenged by today's message, would like to know more about the truth of the gospel, or of gathering under the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, following New Testament principles, please feel free to check out our website, at anchorpointradio.com There you will find more information as well as the location, programs and meeting schedules for the Gospel Hall nearest you. Also feel free to take a look at other literature and audio offers at anchorpointradio.com where you can also subscribe to our AnchorPoint podcast. My name is John Sharp and thank you once again for listening and we invite you to join us again next week at the same time for AnchorPoint, where we believe that in times like these you need a savior, and in times like these, you need an anchor.